Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast of the Cape Elizabeth Church of the Nazarene. We welcome you to join us in a study of God's Word today. As I get ready to read for you from uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 25, I just invite you to keep in mind some of the songs we've sung. In the cross of Christ I glory, when I survey the wondrous cross. Those, the cross is without a doubt in Peter's mind as he writes this. 1 Peter chapter 2. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that though they malign you as evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when He comes to judge. For the Lord's sake, accept the authority of every human institution, whether of the emperor as supreme or of governors as sent by Him, to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right. For it's God's will that by doing right you should silence the ignorance of the foolish, As servants of God, live as free people, yet do not use your freedom as a pretext for evil. Honor everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Slaves, accept the authority of your masters with all deference, not only those who are kind and gentle, but also those who are harsh. For it is to your credit, if, being aware of God, you endure pain while suffering unjustly. If you endure when you are beaten for doing wrong, where is the credit in that? But if you endure when you do right and suffer for it, You have God's approval. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you should follow in His steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in His mouth. When He was abused, He did not return abuse. When He suffered, He did not threaten. But He entrusted Himself to the One who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross, so that, free of sins, we might live for righteousness. By His wounds... You have been healed, for you were going astray like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. This passage is, um, has, th- this passage is a little bit of a challenging one. It's one that has some areas. It's like, okay, how, do, how are we going to navigate this? But it's one that without a doubt has the cross in mind. He, it begins by saying, hey, while you are scattered, while you are living among the various nations, the Gentiles, all the different places at the beginning of chapter 1 where he said that they were scattered in, he said you're going to live such a life among these Gentiles that it's going to make a difference. And this is how you are to live. I remember when um, I was growing up as a kid, the, uh, the evangelists of the day were trying to tell us to find our voice to try to tell us that uh, we all have to be willing, if able, to, to shout from the rooftops our faith in God. And, and they were right. But I remember one evangelist in particular coming to church and making a big show of it by coming up and telling us that with a megaphone. And he had, like, he had a mic, but he also had a megaphone. <laughs> and just, just making a big deal that we have to be able to get our voices out into the world. And I've learned something over the years, is that as we have all picked up megaphones, <laughs> we, have, we all have uh, our own Facebook pages, our own uh, podcasts, or YouTube channels, or, 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 or talk shows, or whatever the case is. Everyone has a voice now, and you can get it out to, all, to, 
to anyone you want to get it out to. And what I've learned is when everyone has a megaphone, we run from the megaphones we don't like, stay by the ones we do until we just create our little echo chamber and uh, all the voices that we like. I find 1 Peter chapter 2, 11, when he says, live such a good life among them, that it's going to make a difference, that he's saying there is so much more than just whether or not you speak loud or get your voice out there. There's a lot that has to do with how you live day by day, and that that will often speak volumes more than just whether or not you have your sign or whether or not you have your word. How you live among people who think and believe differently makes a far greater impact. And so he says to the church, I want you to abstain from sinful desires. Now, I think most of the time when we see a passage like that, uh, to abstain from desires of the flesh, as we read, we think, oh, desires of the flesh. Oh, I know what he means. That's a phrase that means lust. And so he's telling them, you know, uh, okay, I don't want to be crude, but uh, he's telling them, don't do anything. But, uh, but I, I found myself, as I was studying this and looking at this, the desires of the flesh was more than just, say, lust. It was all kinds of desire. You see, in ancient wisdom, in ancient philosophy, bad desires or desires of the flesh were the desires of the body that were contrary to the desires of your will or of your spirit, of your soul. Desires of the flesh are any desire that you might have that goes against what you might have wanted. So, for instance, let's give some examples here. If you say to yourself, I'm changing how I live and I'm eating better, and yet you get a craving and you have that big chocolate chip cookie when you didn't need it, that would have been a desire of the flesh. Oh, man, I wasn't going to do that. I wasn't doing dessert. wasn't going to do that. Uh, but if you do that, you know, you eat a whole box of Thin Mints. Yeah, that's a desire of the flesh. And so, guilty. And so this is one of those, this is one of those, that, that would have been their understanding. Another desire of the flesh would be, okay, um, I, you know, I'm going to get up early. I got, I got a routine I'm going to go on. This is wonderful. Here we go. Saturday morning comes. And you find yourself, man, I slept in. I can't believe it. That would have been considered, according to the ancient wisdom philosophy of the time, that would have been a desire of the flesh. You succumbed to uh, sleeping in longer than you intended, even though your will, your mind had said, I'm going to get up and I'm going I'm to make a difference. I'm going I'm to do something with my Saturday morning. And so those were all considered desires of the flesh. It was a part of the philosophy of the time. A desire of the flesh was anything that might happen, anything you might do because of internal struggle or outside influence that is against what your will was or your mind was. The philosophy of that time that in large part mentioned this kind of idea that a person who is fully in control of themselves and and only does what they will or desire and not what their flesh desires, well, that was called Stoicism. To this day, somebody who is not outwardly influenced to to overreact or, or to share something that they didn't want to share or whatever, someone who's just very, very level, if you will, is a Stoic. 
It, we, we, that's, that's a phrase we use for them. And so when Peter says, so abstain from desires of the flesh, on the one hand, we can recognize that, okay, in chapter 1, he did call us to holiness. He did say there is a call for us and that, that there is this idea of we are living a life lived for God and that this is what he means. But he also carries with it this very historically contextual meaning, which is, As you're living among these Gentiles in these different lands, one of the ways in which they value how people are living their life is whether or not they are living their life according to what they say they're going to live their life. And they're not just going to get distracted day in and day out by the various temptations that they have, minor or major, lustful or not. And so he says to them, abstain from the desires of the flesh because by doing so, everyone around you is going to see, yes, there is something about them. And when they say, you're living yourself, your life so well, you're doing great. How are you able to do that? I'm still struggling with that. They're, they're going to be able to say, it's because of Jesus. It's going to be because of the Holy Spirit that's at work. It's because of my faith in God the Father and what He is doing. And so He says to them as they are scattered, He says, Live such a life that abstains from that because the world will see that and they know that and they're going to wonder about this. And there's all kinds of outside influences that's going to tempt you to do things contrary to the will of God. And he's going to name two of them right off the bat. One is the empire or the emperor. I feel like I need to say the empire a little more scarily like like the bad guy in Star Wars, the Empire. And so, like, like watch out, because they are going to try to get you. Um, uh, and so, uh, he, on the one hand, I think Peter recognizes that the authorities are often agents of order in our world, that they help uh, create a calm, and, and uh, we know that God cares about order. And from the very beginning of creation, he creates out of the chaos, out of the void, he creates the very world. And Peter knows that this is, in many ways, the way the world works. But Peter would also know well that those authorities don't always act well. The governors that are sent by the emperor, punishing those who do wrong according to the emperor, that once they have a word against Christians, well, that means them. So this is not a verse about absolute obedience to the powers of this world. I mean, there are certainly times when Christians have stood up against oppressive regimes, against oppressive powers. But even so, Peter is advocating for a way that will do so, that honors our Lord, that doesn't seek to overthrow, but seeks for radical change through love and forgiveness, through, through a pattern of life that still is committed to the way of the Lord. I find myself in the last hundred years thinking of the stories of like Nelson Mandela and his forgiveness commission, when people are like, eh, forgiving? No, no, no. We know this is going to fall apart. It's just going to be another group of people just oppressing the, the, the former group of people. But sometimes it can indeed make a difference. I think in our own history of uh, MLK, who said, MLK Jr., who said uh, to those who were protesting against the gross injustice in our country, who said, but we will not do so violently. And when asked, why not violently? The response is, the violence will testify against itself. We will commit to the pattern of love and nonviolence shown in Jesus Christ. And so, 
even in recognizing that indeed sometimes the empire is opposed, that we can speak against that which is wrong, but a Christian is still called to live according to the way of Jesus, even when the forces outside are grossly damaging. In verses 18 through 20 in this passage, he talks about as they're traveling through the lands, they have entered into all kinds of arrangements. You see, if we want to go somewhere, we just, we just go. We, we find out what, where we're going to work. We find out where we're going to live. Jen and I did that when we were first married. We were first married. I knew I wanted to go to seminary, and so we were going to move to Kansas City. So we took like a vacation, and we went to Kansas City. And uh, we... Uh, uh, we, we went around and Jen did some interviews. We looked at apartments. We were doing this whole thing. We just kind of scoped it out before, before actually making the move. I mean, not quite the ideal location, you know, going somewhere, just, just seeing as many people as you can, hoping that they'll like you. <laughs> but uh, but we, we made the most out of that and, uh, before we made that move. Back then, if they moved, most often it was because they were trying to escape something or someone. And they would find themselves in a new land without any prospects, saying, okay, what am I going to do here? And they'd have to find somebody and say, if you let us live here, we will work for you until we can get, uh, until we can get on our feet. And we'll work this land for you. And it was a kind of indentured servitude, if you will. Something, a phrase that we, we've learned in our own history. That's how many people first came to America, right? Is, uh, is saying, I don't know how I'm going to get here. I don't know how I'm going to pay for the boat ride, let alone any property when I get there. But I really want to get here. And so they'd work for someone for years and years and years. This was often the case in that time as well. And oftentimes they weren't, didn't have the privilege of choosing the most favorable place, the most favorable job. And sometimes those masters were quite oppressive. What about life in those circumstances, in those situations, when it seems like we're kind of stuck and it's not a matter of just moving on. We're stuck for any number of reasons. When there is someone who is just absolutely against us, what do we do then? Is it worthwhile to continue to kind of live out the the faith and love God has called? or, or, Or are we allowed in those moments to snap, to just kind of let them have it? Is the call to abstain from The desires of the flesh true then when the outside force that is seeking to cause us to act outside of that faithfulness is a force that threatens harm or even death. The early church, I've come to find out, kind of lived under a very odd conviction, a very odd one. Uh, Under the conviction of the resurrection, they knew because of the resurrection, they need not survive. It's a weird phrase. They need not survive. An example of this. Uh, there's a verse in uh, Paul's letter to, to the church in Corinth. A verse that all of us in college hated. We're like, please, please, please tell us God didn't mean this verse. <laughs> Paul said to the church, if you are a single Christian, I encourage you to remain single. <laughs> In college, we didn't want to hear that one. We're like, wait, what? What? No, no, no. We're, we're, we're all dating for a purpose here. And so, um, uh, but, but Paul writes this. That's a weird, weird thing to say. It's a weird thing to say indeed. Because if they don't get married and they have, don't have children, like, 
things aren't going to continue on. Like, the whole movement's going to die out in a generation. Like, this just doesn't make sense. In fact, there's actually a history of some sect sometime near the early Reformation that took that literally, and they, they forbid all members from having children and from any kind of uh, union. And so uh, that sect did not last. It does not exist to this day. Like, when, when Paul says in the church, uh, to the church in Corinth, if you're single, stay single, because you've got to give yourself fully to the mission that is at hand. There is a conviction there. And the conviction is this. The Lord works even in the face of death. That because of the resurrection, we do not have to be a people whose primary concern is our survival. And so Peter, in this passage, is looking at the suffering of those scattered about. And he starts to compare it to the suffering of Christ. A suffering that led to his death. And it's a bold reminder for us that faithfulness to God is an absolute trust in the Holy Spirit to sustain us today, no matter what comes at us. But also that the resurrection is not just a vaporous hope. It's not just a nice idea by which we confess, but it's one that we actually live out. One of the oddest peculiarities for me that sometimes I find among Christians is those who will confess the resurrection that, that, but make all kinds of decisions in life as if this is the only thing they've got. <laughs> when uh, decisions are made and uh, resources hoarded and uh, 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 actions made against other people because I just have to secure my own now. Sometimes I just want to say, but wait a minute, we know, we know there's a resurrection. Today is an odd day. It's a weird day. In many ways, in some ways, it's a sad day, but uh, God's, God's helped me kind of navigate this day. Last week, I received a text from my mom. April 30th is the church's last day. 1,200 miles away, the church I grew up in is holding its final service before it closes its doors. Right now right now. This final service will in some ways be a time of mourning. And many there and many watching or people who hear about it are going to be wondering, well, wonder where it all went wrong. <laughs> what happened? This once very vibrant church, good church. Some will blame a changing society. Oh, people just don't want to go to church anymore. Some will blame previous leadership. If they hadn't X, Y, or Z, or if only they had X, Y, and Z. Uh, or perhaps people blame those who left with wrong intentions. And when it did, you know, it created this issue and that issue. Others might just lump that church in with other churches that have closed over time. Well, you know, they just didn't update appro appropriately, just didn't get with the times. All of those, though, are assumptions, and some of them convictions, but all of those are accusations that kind of start off on the wrong foot. They all start off assuming the church must survive. When I, when I think about um, those in the church uh, that I grew up in, 
where they are now and what's happening. One of the things that I think about is that there are three within the youth group that I was a part of that are ministering right now in the Church of the Nazarene in various places around America. As people have moved and moved on, of course, I've stayed in contact through Facebook. It's one of the, one of the benefits of it. But uh, I've found that, that most of them are engaged in ministry in some way, shape, or form in whatever church that they are a part of, and they are still very much involved. We all have, uh, you know, we are still, we are in many ways a sent, scattered, dispersed church. And now we all could have stuck around, like if, if no one had ever left, Jen and I would still be there with our children. Those other ministers would be there with their children. And of course, some of the other people who moved on are now ministering somewhere else uh, and serving their church or their community somewhere else. They would all be there. And the church would be not be closing today. But of course, if that were the case, there would be so much of a significant deficiency everywhere else where God has sent them and scattered them. And where there was the pain of loss whenever a member moved or a leadership change happened, or youth went off to college, or a change occurred, there was also the Holy Spirit doing something and working and moving there. And so, yes, I can lament the end of a memory, the knowledge that next time I visit my family in Milwaukee, I will have to find a new place to attend on Sunday morning. And that the closing... And, of course, I can kind of, you know, lament the closing of a church that's always been close to me. But the point of when I was there, Milwaukee, First Church of the Nazarene, later changed to Community Life, Church of the Nazarene, was never about procuring its future and ensuring its future. Although they were smart and they were wise with everything that they did and their resources to try their best to, to uh, uh, be faithful and to, and to remain open. But, it was, but their, their purpose... Their message to me always was, we are about creating believers who will be faithful at all times and in all seasons. To believe in the resurrection and to be faithful to God, abstaining from all desires to the contrary. And to that point, I can say the church has been very faithful. And I suspect that in this coming year when they have their district assembly and even if people were to ever look at general church records or when those in the community drive by and see an empty building, they're going to say, oh, all of this is just symptomatic of a greater problem or, or of some kind of failure or of death. But I say to you today, along with Peter, death is not so bad so long as we are faithful For what looks like death may in fact be a new birth or the entry into the hope of the resurrection. Isn't those the kind of words we even use at a funeral? And may the church always be more concerned about faithfulness to love God and love our neighbor. And each one of us more concerned with walking with Jesus, yes, even to the cross, ensure trust that the heavenly Father raises the crucified. And in that faithfulness to a world who functions so very differently, 
perhaps they see, just as Peter had hoped and prayed that they do, there is something going on here and there is something different and that this hope is lasting and I need and must know more. And we might be surprised how a church that seems to be acting so contrary to the general assumptions of what we need to do to survive, that yet the Holy Spirit has spread it around the world and continues to multiply it in ways that amaze us and astound us. The passage reread in Acts is a passage I have heard a million times from all kinds of church growth uh, seminars. Hey, look, the number's being added to every day, and so let's make that our emphasis, let's make that our focus. In 1 Peter chapter 2, his focus is this. Let's live faithful to the one who went to the cross. And then then we'll be surprised indeed by how God raises and works in the midst of that faithfulness. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you today asking for your help and your assistance. Lord, I wonder if there's anyone uh, here or watching who might find themselves wondering where they went wrong or where something didn't go right or perhaps of a, of a failure or an inconsistency in something that just, well, that didn't work. Perhaps, Heavenly Father, you can work despite that and show us that you are the God who has never finished and never done, even when things look like things have fallen apart. That you are the God who works in darkness. You are the God who works in sorrow. You are the God who works even where there's death. And that we might be surprised to find new life, new work, new hope because of your continued faithfulness. Thank you for that. And so, Heavenly Father, today we've come to honor you and to worship you. In song, we've looked to the cross. And in a moment, we're going to come forward and we're going to receive the symbols of your Son, Jesus Christ, who is broken for us, whose blood was shed for us. And as we take this walk to receive these emblems, may we remember that we are committing to follow the path of your Son and to trust fully in the saving, sanctifying, and resurrecting grace. Thank you for that promise and your hope. Amen. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. We hope this sermon has encouraged you with the gospel of Jesus. More sermons are available online at our website, capenazarene.org. May God bless you abundantly as you serve him today.